This is Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. Hello, thank you for tuning in. I'm Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. And here, as ever, to unearth the inspiring, instructive, and highly practical wisdom of a Torah passage with a fellow seeker of biblical truth. I am delighted today to be joined by Yael Eckstein, the president and CEO of the International Fellowship of Christians and Jews. IFCJ raises over $100 million a year from around the world for the benefit of Jews in need around the world. And in 2020, Yael, for her work at IFCJ, for her work for the Jewish people, particularly in relationship with our Christian friends, and for the book she's written, was named by the Jerusalem Post as one of the 50 most influential Jews in the world. So Yael, welcome to The Rabbi's Husband. Thank you so much, Mr. Rabbi's Husband. I love that. Oh, well, thank you. It's, it's uh, my favorite title. So I'm excited to talk to you about your chosen passage, which is the most appropriate possible passage for you and the work that you've done, which is Ezekiel eleven seventeen. Yeah, it was kind of hard to choose, actually. I've gotten asked a lot of questions in my life and done a lot of interviews. And I think that this took me the most time to think about. What's your favorite Bible passage? Yeah, that's a hard one. Wow. I mean, yes, the question kind of defines the term embarrassment of riches. <laughs> you could almost just open the Bible and point to anyone and, and be satisfied with what you end up with. But you chose Ezekiel eleven seventeen. So tell us, what does Ezekiel eleven seventeen say? And why is it so significant to you? What it exactly says is, this is what the sovereign Lord says, I will gather you from the nations and bring you back from the countries where you have been scattered, and I will give you back the land of Israel again. And I guess I chose this one because it kind of is a culmination for all of my favorite Bible verses, which is, I think in order to really get much out of these biblical teachings, you have to first have faith. I think Judaism specifically has two different levels. One is the practicality, the fact that it's Judaism that turned the world from a idol-worshiping world to a monotheistic world and gave birth to Christianity and to Islam. It's Judaism that brought in these once radical concepts and mainstream them of don't kill when people used to be bringing child sacrifices and don't steal and all of these things. I think Judaism could kind of be categorized in two ways. One is the kind of ethical teachings that make total sense. And then on the second part is the spiritual teachings that make no sense. And that's what kind of Judaism is for me, not only believing in what we understand, but also believing that as humans created in God's image, we have this amazing ability to transform the mundane into holiness. So I guess this Bible verse is kind of what proves that to me. It takes something totally esoteric and far-fetched that after 2,000 years, you're going to take the Jewish people, God, and return them to Israel. It's never happened before. There's never been a people after so long exiled returning to their homeland, their native tongue reborn. It hasn't happened. So when was Ezekiel saying this? So Ezekiel's, of course, the prophet, and he's giving this prophecy, which, as you mentioned, and as we'll discuss, is staggering in the fact that it actually happened. So what's the historical environment that he's making this stunning proclamation? 
all of Ezekiel's prophecies are based on, obviously, the destruction of the temple and the hope afterwards. And so this is very much, I think, kind of that double-sided coin that Jews live by. On one hand, always remembering the destruction, being aware of the destruction, and being aware that it's our responsibility to stop that destruction that so many of the prophets were so focused on, you know, stop doing all these bad things so that the temple will be holy again and it won't be destroyed. But also after the fact, coming back and saying, don't worry, it's not over. There's still hope. We'll still be reunited. We'll still be brought together. We'll still be brought back to Jerusalem, even from within this hardship and destruction. So the temple's being destroyed. And the temple was, of course, the center of Jewish life, incomparable to anything we have today. It's like the entire world revolved around this building. and a reasonable, normal, rational person at the time would have said, with the temples destroyed, Judaism's going down with it. That's the only reasonable thing one could say. And in comes Ezekiel, and he says, I mean, let's just say the passage again because it's so stunning and awesome. Thus saith the Lord, I will even gather you from the people and assemble you out of the countries where you have been scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel. And as you said, it had never happened in the world before, obviously. It has never happened in the world since. It's inconceivable that a people will have been scattered from its holy place in its holy city to all over the world ever again, let alone in thousands of years, have been reconstituted in exactly the same place with exactly the same faith, with customs that are either exactly the same or entirely coherent. It's mind-blowing. And that's why I think it kind of sums it all up for me. It's where the physical, the mundane, and the spiritual connect. This is, for me, Israel in general, and this specific kind of in-gathering and promise from God to be returned is really where the mundane and the spiritual kiss. And the absolutely spectacular and miraculous. Yeah, defies all all logic. (laughs) So when you're walking through Jerusalem, which you do every day, how often do you think of this passage? They tried to not let a day go by. I mean, there are so many passages on the Jewish people coming home to Israel and being reunited. I love Or Chadash Al Tzion Ta'ir. There'll be a new light on Zion. I always think, wow, those are my children. You know, I've given birth four times in Jerusalem, and each time that's what I think about. This is Or Chadash Al Tzion Ta'ir. This is a new light illuminating Zion. Where's that from? I haven't heard that before. Or Chadash Al Ta'ir, that we say in our prayers every Friday night on the Shabbat morning. After this, I'm going to go and Google exactly where it came from. But every time when I'm pregnant and I'm saying the Shabbat morning prayers and I get to that, I always stop and say, wow, it is a schut. What a privilege it is to be part of that. You're actually doing it right. And when I'm walking through Jerusalem, I always, particularly when, when I see children playing, I think of Jeremiah who said, one day there'll be children playing in Jerusalem and then you see children playing in Jerusalem. And yes, it's the same confidence, but I think more than confidence, one of the gifts we receive from the prophets is, is hope. They looked at the impossible and Ezekiel says, from the ends of the earth, you will be regathered. Jeremiah says, you will once again hear children playing on the streets of Jerusalem, both insane predictions. I mean, too insane to even warrant being called predictions. <laughs> 
<laughs> totally. And you get why people like, you know, until it was proven, it was debated whether they were real or false prophets, right? It's only clear in hindsight. Wow. They saw it. Sometimes I think about, you know, when you're talking about walking the streets of Jerusalem or, or even especially when, you know, from my work with the International Fellowship of Christians and Jews, almost every day we have Aliyah flights landing in Israel. Tomorrow we have a flight full of Ethiopian Jews from the once lost tribe of Dan. I mean, it's incredible. And so, so it just is always relevant that I see what's happening and I look at it in two ways. First of all, I look at it in my own life of just trying to never take my reality as a given, never take it for granted. You know, I always try to remember every single day, although I've lived in Israel for 15 years and Israel is the only home that my children know, the value that me and my husband try to raise them with is always remembering it's not a given. We are the culmination of prayers of 2,000 years of the Jewish people coming home to Israel, and it's not something to be taken lightly. Right. And, and when you walk through Jerusalem or any part of Israel and you think about the passage you chose from Ezekiel or the passage from Jeremiah, you have to realize that you're living in biblical history. Ezekiel says it, and here we are walking it. There we're observing children. Maybe it's our own children. Maybe we're with our children as they're playing and laughing and and. We're actually living biblical history. We're living the prophecy. The prophecy is not something that happened thousands of years. It's we're actually living it. That might be one of the most incredible things about being alive. Oh my gosh, completely. Sometimes I'll just stop and think these prophets thousands of years ago saw me standing here. <laughs> and it's such a, I look at it as both a privilege and an opportunity and responsibility. That's right. Now, when you bring so many people from around the world to Israel, which you have personally done, you've personally lived this Ezekiel passage because you've gone around the entire world, have identified Jews in far-flung places from, you talk about Ethiopia to Eastern Europe and beyond, and you've brought them home. When you bring these people who maybe only dreamed about Israel, maybe never even thought they could actually get there, and you actually bring them home and you invite them to live this prophecy with you, what's their reaction? So I have to say that I very much look at it as it's not me bringing them home, but really I'm in such a privileged position to be leading the organization as bringing them home. It's really our millions of Christian donors around the world who give so sacrificially to make that happen. That's right. It's a sacred partnership. It's a sacred partnership and that I've learned so I've been so inspired by learning from my whole life from my father of blessed memory of Rabbi Chiel Eckstein of really, I don't think a day went by where he looked at it as a given that he was in this position to be helping so many Jewish people and furthering bridge building in a way that hasn't seen the Jewish people have friends like this in our entire history. So I try to always keep that perspective that when I'm at those flight arrivals or when I travel to Morocco or to Ukraine or to anywhere else in the world that I can't even speak about, I'm going on shlichut. I'm really going as on a mission, you know, that it's not me, but I'm in a privileged position. I, you know, I always say, God, use me in whatever way I can to be a vessel to honor you and perform your will. But I'm held up by so many people. And when I go in and I meet these people who have been praying their whole life to make Aliyah, who have just been longing for Zion, who would do anything and have done anything to get to Israel, waiting in camps for years sometimes on end. Years, wow. Yeah, until their opportunity to move to Israel and doing so much kind of physical and spiritual hardships, really like you look back at Abraham, Lech Lecha, 
Mibet Avicha, El Aretz Asher That's really what it is. The same thing today. That's what I always hear God saying to these people. Leave your homeland, your language, your culture, and go to the land that I'll show you. Because although Abraham maybe didn't know exactly where he was going, these people also, until you've been in Israel, you can't imagine where you're going to. They're really coming out of faith. Very interesting. No, because as someone who's been to Israel many times, it's like when I think of Israel, I think of specific places. It's it's very real to me. But so what you're saying is for people who've never been and don't have access to all the technology that we do where you could virtually go. Yeah, because we're talking about who's their grandmother, Holocaust survivor, survivors of communism, that when they survived that, so many of them said, I'm not going to even tell my children and grandchildren they're Jewish because in their head, it meant an X on their forehead, that they're going to be killed for their faith, that they're going to be, they're going to have to face anti-Semitism and all this negativity that they didn't even tell them. And now we're living in these awesome times, which are very connected again to the verse of Ezekiel eleven seventeen and Israel being reunited that for the first time, I think on the grandparents' deathbed, what I could imagine they were thinking was for the first time, being a Jew actually gives you the privilege of moving to Israel, being protected by your own government, army, people, instead of being threatened and killed by the neighbors. I always hear the words of God speaking to Abraham, go from the land of your father, from your country that you're familiar with, from your culture, from your language to the land that I'll show you. And I think about it because for these people, making the decision to move to Israel is really that leap of faith. They don't know what they're coming to, but they know that they're Jewish and this is their homeland. And for that, they say, Dayeno, enough. I want to come home to my homeland. You were mentioning um, before that uh, very often people discover that they're Jewish on their deathbed, their grandparents tell them for the first time. Yeah. Sometimes when I see these youngsters, like in their 20s or 30s moving to Israel, I'm always so fascinated with why they decided to come, especially from the former Soviet Union, when if they're still Jewish, it means that their parents, their grandparents, their great-grandparents lived through communism, Nazism. And so many people lately in, in their 30s have been telling me, well, I just found out that I was Jewish a few years ago when my grandmother was on her deathbed. She told me I'm Jewish. And I started looking into what that means. And I realized that it means that I belong to Israel. And to me, that's just a sign that we are living in such hopeful times within all the darkness and hardship and scariness of this modern world. We're living in times where for the first time, being Jewish means you are actually accepted. You have a home, you have a government, you have an army that their only goal is protecting and providing for you. So that's always inspiring for me to see. Another new development for the Jewish people is the one that your father was so instrumental in helping create and forge, which is this friendship we have with Christians. In 5,000 years, we have never had friends like this, not even close. This is an entirely new development that is, it's of biblical, cosmic, however one wants to conceive it, the largest possible significance. And your father was one of the few people who identified its potential created and forged it. And now we're all Jews and Christians and Zionists everywhere benefiting from that vision and that execution and this great and enduring friendship. It's really amazing. And sometimes I still have to pinch myself, even though I was raised with it, just to see how far it's come. For the first time in history, the Jewish people have friends and we don't just have friends. We have millions of Christians who pray for the peace of Jerusalem and church, who take every stance they can to make Israel 
peaceful and strong to secure the Jewish people. I mean, one of my close friends and, and actually fellowship board member, Johnny Moore, was instrumental in drawing up the peace agreement with the UAE and with uh, Bahrain. And I remember when he was in Israel for the moving of the U.S. embassy to Jerusalem, he's on President Trump's religious council, that they were instrumental Christians in getting President Trump to move the U.S. Embassy to Jerusalem. And so what we're seeing is huge steps in both providing for the welfare of Israel and the Jewish people. The fellowship is the largest provider of humanitarian aid in Israel. We raise around $160 million a year for basic needs. And also in every other area, whether it's Christian tourism to Israel or investments in Israel or politics, you know, supporting Israel, Christians are there making sure that Israel is strong and secure. And you know what's most amazing, Mark? I think we're only at the tip of the iceberg. There's 700 million evangelical Christians around the world. And so I have a big responsibility and an exciting task ahead to just grow those numbers of friends for Israel and the Jewish people. Absolutely. Now, when you meet somebody who is making Aliyah, who, and this person discovered that he or she was Jewish in their 20s and 30s, in what seems to be like a, an existential moment right out of late Genesis, like a Joseph moment, like, you know. <laughs> totally. <laughs> and you're Jewish. Oh, Davichai. Ani Yosef. Oh, Davichai. Yeah, totally. Revealing yourself. Yeah, exactly. When someone's like revealing themselves in like a Joseph moment, and it's like, you're Jewish. Had that person been brought up something else typically, brought up nothing? And how do they react? And how do they go from being told they're Jewish and it's been hidden from them for all these years, this family secret, it's now being revealed to them. How do they go from that moment to making Aliyah? So I think there are two different types of people who fit into this category. One is just around right before Corona. So it must've been a year already. I met a man who it was always proudly Jewish and wore his star of David and kept his Hebrew name. And when he was around 14, he was beat up really bad in Ukraine for being Jewish, kind of a anti-Semitic attack. And after that, he never wore a star of David, never wore a kippah. He changed his last name even. And it was a journey getting to Israel with so many different family responsibilities. And, you know, I, I didn't get into the details, but you could tell he had a very hard journey until he made it to Israel. And when he landed in Israel, this was, I have chills just remembering it. The first thing he did was put his Star of David necklace on and hold up his Jewish last name on a piece of paper. And he said, finally, I can be proud for being Jewish. And so that's one group of people who have to kind of hide their Judaism in different places throughout the world because of the anti-Semitism and threats. And they come to Israel in order to finally live the life that they've wanted to. And then the other part that you're talking about are those who have recently discovered their Judaism. I'm sure the people that I meet who embark on the journey of Aliyah are the ones who have found real meaning and comfort in this message of being Jewish. I'm sure there are many more who are still in the places where they were born who don't connect to it the same way. But in Ukraine, for example, when I go there, what I see is on one hand, there are so many amazing things as there are in any country. Um, and on the other hand, they're still reeling from the side effects of communism. I mean, you see, I visit sometimes Jewish people in little villages who don't have running water. 
95-year-old women who have a well in their backyard that they have to pump out the water. And their neighbors don't come and help them. They have young neighbors and, you know, they don't come and help them. And I, and I always ask, how could it be? I can't imagine growing up in America, growing up in Israel, if I had an elderly neighbor who lived alone that needed help with basic water, it wouldn't happen if they're on their own. And what everyone says is, this is the lasting effects of the generation that survived communism. So it's not even anti-Semitism, it's communism. It's both. You know, it, it's possibly both, but it's definitely as a country, as a society, those societal values are very influenced by communism. And then you have individual situations of anti-Semitism as well. Wow. Now, what have been your experience in terms of your work in partnership with our beloved Christian friends and allies? What has been your experience with Jews, perhaps of Spanish and Portuguese origin, who Maybe they're lighting Shabbat candles. They don't know quite why. Or they have some other, what we know is a Jewish custom, but for them, it's just a family custom. And then at some point, they realize the family custom is not just a family custom. It's actually a Jewish custom and they're Jewish. So it's such an interesting topic, Mark. And it's some it's one that I want to discover more. I haven't, through my work, I haven't been so involved in that so much because there are two areas of people that we help and who are our donors. One are the people that we help are those who have been recognized by the Israeli government as being eligible for Aliyah. And then we bring those, and those are mostly from the mainstream Jewish community in South America that are facing a lot of poverty, a lot of hardships. But I haven't encountered many Muranos, I guess, for lack of a better word, um, who have been newly revealed. It's an amazing, amazing thing. I don't know if the Israeli government has like kind of this large scale policy of recognizing Muranos because they don't necessarily have paperwork showing that they're grandmother was Jewish. No, they wouldn't have any, almost by definition. Exactly. So it's definitely a really interesting topic, but our donors are more the traditional evangelical Christians. But there's something there actually that's also really interesting that I've, from the time I started working with the fellowship 15 years ago, I remember going to my father and saying, I feel like our donors must have some Jewish blood in them, like that Pintalayid. You know, it doesn't make sense that they would love Israel so much to this extent and not have any Jewish heritage. And now with the DNA testing that you could do, so often when I speak to some of our donors, they'll be so excited that they found out they're like 20% Jewish or something, you know? So it, it's an interesting thing how we forget, you know, that the Jewish people are so small and minuscule, but the truth is, if you go to that soul level and where we came from and all the pogroms and all of the escaping different countries and all of the assimilation, there's a lot more of us than we think. <laughs> there's a lot more of us than we think. And there's a lot of customs too. I remember uh, right before uh, coronavirus, probably a year or so before, um, Eric and I had a Shabbat dinner at our home and um, a bunch of ambassadors from the UN came and uh, the Ukrainian ambassador is a wonderful man. I think it was him who told me, I've been all over the world as a diplomat, but Israel is the only country where it doesn't look the same when you go back. Because inevitably, he says, so much has developed, so much has changed. It's so dynamic. It's the only place in the world that looks different every time you go back. But he told me another thing too. He said, uh, so we're doing Shabbat dinner and Erica is a rabbi, of course, so she's explaining it. And uh, he looks at the bread and he says, what are you doing with that Ukrainian bread here? I said, uh, it's not Ukrainian bread, it's challah. Definitely Jewish bread, it's challah. <laughs> and he said, no, 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 it's Ukrainian bread. But this challah had become so much a part of at least his Ukrainian experience that he thought it was Ukrainian bread. 
But in fact, it was definitely challah. And he's like, who knew, who knew he was eating challah his whole life. That is amazing. And it shows how things are so hard for us to comprehend in kind of theoretical. We all live kind of in the moment. And to imagine how life in Ukraine and Eastern Europe, you think about America, like thriving Jewish communities, there were places that were 10 times more than that, where 90% of their population was Jewish. And so now we look back at it and think, oh, you know, that's cute that he looks at that as challah, but it just reminds me how rich in Jewish culture and knowledge and spirituality all of Eastern Europe was filled with just three, four generations ago. The odds are that his grandparents lived in a place that was overwhelmingly Jewish, or there's some chance. And so the challah just became the bread in the market. And then a generation or two, it's forgotten it was Jewish bread. And then he comes to Shabbat dinner in New York and learns it's Jewish bread and is delighted by what he learned. So, Right. I love that. Well, yeah, thank you for such a fascinating uh, conversation. We could go on forever about this, but thank you for such a fascinating conversation stemming from Ezekiel eleven seventeen. Now, the uh, concluding question of the rabbi's husband always goes from one text, a sacred text of the Bible, to another text, which is Andre Malroux's 1968 book, Anti-Memoir. He tells the story, he says, I just ran into a man with whom I served in the war, and he said this man had saved a lot of Jews and then had become a parish priest. So I said to the priest, in all of your years of hearing confessions, what are two things that you've learned about mankind? And the priest said, one, everyone is much less happy than he seems. And two, there's no such thing as a grown-up person. So, yeah, I want to talk about your father for a moment, because your father was a dear friend of mine who Erica and I loved so much. And uh, whenever we'd come to Israel, he was the first person we'd call and he would visit us in, in New York. And we loved your father and he was such a mentor to me. And we just learned so much from him on so many different levels. So, now that you've taken over the leadership of IFCJ, what are two things that you've learned from your father, who is such a wise man in so many ways? What are two things that you've learned from your father that you bring into the work that you do as the leader of this sacred partnership with Christians and Jews? When my father was alive, he'd always say, yeah, well, you're so amazing. You're so much better than me. You're going to bring this to such farther places. And I would always answer him the same way. I'd say, Abba, I am a midget on the shoulders of a giant. And so I would say, two things that I really have learned most kind of powerfully from my father that I try to never forget is number one, we are doing holy work in running an organization so large. You know, our goal was $124 million this year and we raised $160 million in the coronavirus year. Our goal was to get to 1.4 million Jewish people in need. We got to over 2 million Jewish people in need. I believe an organization should be run like the best company. Just because you're a nonprofit doesn't mean that just getting the aid to the people is enough. No, no. You have to make sure that you're getting the aid to the people in the most effective way, in the most strategic manner, that you're creating very clear goals and criteria, very clear KPIs, that you have working models to prove that you're going to grow and succeed and reach the people who you need to reach. But within all of that, my father always brings me back to that place of be professional, look at the numbers, look at growth, look at goals and KPIs. Never forget that this is a spiritual mission, that you have to use the practical tools, but you will only succeed if you realize that this is of God. And one story that really brings that down for me was when we were in a staff meeting and we were going over, you know, someone told the story of how they called a donor to thank them for their donation. And in the end, the donor made even a bigger donation. And my father said, I want everyone to be very clear with that message and what we just heard. We don't make 
thank you calls so that their donation will be bigger. We make thank you calls to thank them for their donation because it's not a given. One of the outcomes might be that their donation will be bigger. But let's all be clear, that's not why we call and thank them. And that was something that really, really stuck with me. And the second thing is really humbleness and modesty. My father started the organization when he was being ostracized from the Jewish community. He was in the middle of studying Shas and he was kicked out from his Chavrusa because he was working with Christians. He was almost put in Cherem. There was a Beit Din to put him in Cherem. I mean, he was not the most loved figure like he was, thank God, when he passed away, that he got to reap the benefits of all of his hard work. But I always remember from where my father came, from where it all started, and to really run the organization with, with humbleness. Well, he certainly didn't. You certainly do. Now, let, let me just conclude with two things that I learned from your father out of many, many things. I remember talking to him about donors to IFCJ because he was giving me advice in my role as chairman of Hatzal and African Mission Healthcare. And he said the average gift to IFCJ was $74. And he said, this is a sacrificial gift. He said, the people that are donating to IFCJ will often go without something in order to make that donation. He said, maybe they won't take a vacation. Maybe they won't go out to dinner. They very often will deny themselves something of value in order to make this gift for the Jewish people in the state of Israel. He said, this is a sacrificial gift. And he said, rich people don't make sacrificial gifts. And like, it's absolutely right. And then he said, this is what generosity is. He said, the person who's giving $74 is usually more generous than the person who might give $7 million because the person who gives $7 million, they're going to have the same dinner that they would have had if they had given more or less nothing. It actually affects the rich person's life, not at all. Maybe with very few exceptions, maybe with no exceptions, but it's the person giving $74 who is the most generous person because that person's making a sacrificial gift. And that person deserves the appreciation, the respect, the gratitude, the kavod of someone who's actually sacrificing for something that he or she believes in. You know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of kind of the Western Wall, the Kotel. They say, why is it? Why is the Western Wall still standing? And the rabbis and commentators say it's the Western Wall was built with the tithes of the poor, that, that God couldn't destroy it. This was from the little that the poor had. All the other walls were built with the uh, sacrifices and tithes of the rich, with a lot of money that they were bringing, you know, their tithes, their 10%. They're both bringing 10%. But the Western Wall specifically was from the poor people and that God couldn't destroy. That's exactly it. The other thing I remember for your father, I remember having dinner with him at uh, this kosher restaurant in New York, and we were talking about the Jacob and Esau story. And I made some reference to um, Rebecca tricking her husband. He said, no, the old man wasn't tricked. I said, what do you mean he wasn't tricked? He was tricked in giving the blessing that was intended for Esau to Jacob. He said he wasn't tricked. He said, listen to what he said. He said, he has the hands of Esau and the voice of Jacob. And what your father said was, that was Isaac teaching us, this is what the Jewish people need. He said he was waiting for Jacob to have the voice of Jacob, to have the intellect, the spirituality of Jacob, but he also needed the hands of Esau. To go out into the world. That's right, to go into the world and also just to create the modern state of Israel. He said, this is the modern state of Israel. The modern state of Israel has what we might define as spirituality, as study, but it also has the IDF. And one cannot exist without the other. They're both absolutely necessary and they both completely and utterly depend on each other. And Isaac was waiting until his son had the hands of Esau and the voice of Jacob. And only then could the Jewish people 
continue? Could he give the gift of transmission to his son? And so your father said he wasn't tricked at all. He was the smartest guy in the room. He knew exactly what he was doing. And he was imbuing a message that we live by today. That is so beautiful. I've never heard that. Yadayim yadayasav ve'akol kol Yaakov. And that's the modern interpretation of how that prophecy is also coming to fruition. That's right. That, that was a prophecy. And I learned it from your father. So That's beautiful. Thank you for sharing, Mark. Uh, well, thank you so much for coming on The Rabbi's Husband and for uh, the sacred work that you do and the sacred partnership that uh, you're forging. Thank you for everything that you do and the sacred work that you do and the sacred partnerships that you're forging as well. And I look forward to seeing you in Israel. Absolutely. I, Q1. It's on. You are the God of the If you're enjoying this episode, I hope that you'll sign up for the Rabbi's Husband newsletter, which includes book giveaways from our podcast guests, my weekly column on Christian Broadcasting Network, inspiring updates from United Hatzalah and African Mission Healthcare, and a behind-the-scenes look at my upcoming book published by St. Martin's Essentials, The Telling, How Judaism's Essential Book Reveals the Meaning of Life. You can sign up at therabbishusband.com or feel free to email daniel at therabbishusband.com.